Welcome again to week three of our online services with more to come. Oh boy. I'd like to, before we start, invite you once again to turn to the outline that you can find associated with the YouTube video, or you can go to www.chewilaefree.org and find the outline there. That's www.chewilaefree.org and find the outline. Well, more than ever, we need to seek God's very presence and honestly lay our emotions before him like I talked about two weeks ago. But today, we're gonna to talk about Palm Sunday and we're gonna be looking at the triumphal entry from John chapter 12, but let's start with prayer. Pray with me. Lord God, we open our hearts again to you. So many people, Lord, are at home, not moving around much, maybe bored, maybe still trying to figure out how to work from home, how to navigate family while you're working from home, losing a job, working so many hours, especially the healthcare people that you're exhausted as well as in harm's way. And Lord, we just pray for all of the people from across the, the spectrum that you would be with us in a mighty way to reveal yourself as we approach the Passion Week, Lord, may our passion for you grow as we think about what you've done for us and how you have not left us alone, even in this time of a coronavirus. So we just ask, Lord, and pray you touch our hearts, speak into our spirit, that we may listen and lay aside some of our distractions to know what you want us to walk away with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the speaker was at a conference and she in her hotel room received a lovely basket of fresh fruit. It had apples and oranges and, and bananas, but she noticed this little pink cellophane wrapped item. She opened it and inside was a white chocolate lamb. And she was so excited thinking, oh my gosh, forget the fruit. I can't wait to bite into that chocolate. But then she remembered her vow that she was going to abstain from chocolate, at least for a while. And so she carefully rewrapped the little white lamb of chocolate in the pink cellophane, put it back in the basket. Well, the week went on and she would go to her room and she would pass by that basket. She said, I can almost smell the aroma of the chocolate in the room as she shared it with the lamb. And so she ate the apple and an orange and a banana, but not the chocolate. Once the conference was over, she finally convinced herself and talked herself into, well, what if I just eat the ears on the, on the edges of the, the little white lamb? And so with a sense of sublime expectancy, she unwrapped it, took it, and bit down into it. And, ah! It wasn't white chocolate after all. It was a bar of soap that had been fashioned into the shape of a lamb. The lamb that looked so good through the rose-colored cellophane, it looked so wonderful, turned out to be a bitter disappointment. It was not what she had expected. So nearly 2,000 years ago, there were a whole bunch of other people, some different groups of people that had 
expectations when Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. Each group wanted something different from God. So we're going to look at those three or four different groups and we're going to unpack what their expectations and disappointments were. But in recent weeks, let me just kind of tap into some of our own disappointment in our heart. We've been turned upside down in our world all the way across the globe. We're stuck at home while we watch our fortunes dwindle. And we might even admit that we expected more from God than the coronavirus. So how should we respond? Well, let's turn. Turn to John. We're going to be mostly in John chapter 12, but I want to set a little political scene before that in John chapter 11. So let's start with John 11, verses 47 and 48. And we're going to be talking about the chief priests. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they ask? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now let's go to chapter 12, verse 10 of John. It says, So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing. Now Lazarus was, of course, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead a few chapters earlier. So these priests and these Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, the, they were actually political opponents. They were on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet these liberal, they, they were called the uh, Sadducees in other places of scripture, the priests, they were kind of like the liberals. And then the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. And they were very much at war with each other in politics to see who could gain the hearts of the people. But this group collectively were responsible for the local government under the Roman governor who wasn't in residence in Jerusalem. And so they are alarmed and they're disappointed at this false Messiah, at least false in their eyes. And so the people are following Jesus instead of following them. And so they're jealous. So all their best efforts to try to push Jesus away, push him down, even have little plans and plots to kill him don't work. And they see that they are losing power. And so what they decide to do, we're going to kill Jesus. And we got to kill Lazarus now because, you know, he's this image and symbol of Jesus' power of raising someone from the dead. They are so blind that they resort to evil. But what I want to stress is they're not willing to give up their position. They're not willing to look and say, maybe we're wrong. Maybe God's up to something. Nope, they're going to cling and hold to that position no matter what. So number one, if you're following on your outline, disappointment number one is giving up something. When, when we have to give up something, we don't like it. We're disappointed. Now, here's the problem. Society teaches us that our positions give us an identity. They show that we matter. But in recent weeks, so many folks both formally and informally, have given up their positions. They've had to surrender their influence and prestige in different arenas, like, you know, maybe at work, 
They may not be working or they're working at home where they don't interact with people. Um, giving it up in the community can't move around, so where's my position and influence? How about with friends that we're supposed to be socially distancing from? Or at church, so many churches are not meeting across the country. And even our position and our prestige and influence in our family has shifted radically. Things are not the same. And we have to negotiate, how does this all work? And so we're stuck at home trying to figure that out. But maybe there are some of you that think, what, what's going to happen to me after the coronavirus with my position? Will it be so different? Will things be the same? Will I lose influence Will it because I lost my position? And you might wonder, who will I be then? I mean, what's my identity if I don't have a job anymore or it's changed? Or they say, yeah, you stay at home and keep working from there. So we cling to that identity at the expense of God's plan. And we are just like the religious leaders because we don't want to let go of something. We don't want to give anything up. And, and furthermore, something else we hate to give up is the, the forms and, and the structures of how the world works or how our life works or how our job works or our church works. And we don't like to see those structures and forms changed. We like them just the way they've been, don't we? And so we resist any change there. And what if God wants to do a new thing? What if God is right now doing a new thing with so many churches not meeting together? And you know, you know from the news, that is a big controversial area right now. But what if we stop and ask God, what do you want to do? What if you're doing a new thing? What if you're putting new wine in new wineskins in some form to say, I want to change how you interact with me and the depth with which you interact with each other, and I want to take it deeper. So maybe you say, I've given up a lot right now. I don't want to have to give up anything more. So you cling to the, the stuff that you have left that feels like so little and say, don't make me give up anything more, God. But God wants to anchor your identity in himself. And he wants you to cling to him, to look at what he's given you right now and to resist giving up and to, re to resist that whole idea that my identity is made by my positions or my influence. And so God wants to anchor your identity so you can handle these seismic shifts that are going on in our world around us. Well, there were two brothers. They lived on a farm, grew up together, and when they became adults, one of them went away to earn a law degree, had a prestigious position in a big law firm in the city. The other brother, he stayed home on the farm, and he tended to the wheat crop. And so one summer day, the lawyer brother came back to visit his farmer brother, and, and, and he kind of puffed himself up a little, and he said to him, you know, why don't you go somewhere and make a name for yourself so you can hold your head up high like me? So he smugly says this. His, his farmer brother points to the wheat field out there, and he says, hey, look out there at that, that field of wheat. Notice how those heads of wheat that have the mature grains are bent down and stooping low, but the empty heads, they're the only ones that stand up tall. 
So this morning, can I ask you, where's your head? Is it willing to make room for God's plan? Well, that's one group that we have, the religious leaders. And now let's look at a second group, the crowd. In John chapter 12, verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Well, this crowd was a crowd of pilgrims that were coming from all over Israel, from the countryside and, and other little cities. And they were going, coming to celebrate Passover. It would, of course, be about this time of year. And they would go into the temple once a year in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. But they've heard about this miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they are so excited. Hey, this might be the Messiah. So they are all pumped up. And so they're waving palm branches around, which would symbolize victory. See, now, palm branches, aren't they aren't just, oh, look, there's some available foliage to get off the tree. But they were a symbol of victory. Palm branches are, are a part of God's kingdom. Every year in the fall, when they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they would kind of camp out and make little booths, and the palm branches would make up the, the roof and even the sides. So they have an important point of symbolizing victory. But then Jesus also comes uh, riding on a colt. Oh, wait, before I get to that, let me tell you about the Old Testament titles that they were shouting, because they're also very significant. Three different titles. The Old Testament title, Hosanna, is Hebrew for save us now. The title, he who comes, may not sound like much to us, but it's the coming one. It's a messianic title from Psalm 118. And then also king of Israel was not just a king of our little land, but the king that would help reestablish Israel's prominent place in the world, like back in the days of, of King David and Solomon after him. So they are shouting messianic titles, very significant. Now to the donkey, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Now most conquering kings, they would come in on a war horse in a big parade to show off their, their power. But Jesus comes in on a donkey, which would symbolize peace. And so it's really what he's saying is, I am not coming as the conquering king to overthrow a military dictatorship, a military empire with mili I have military authority and that's who I'm about. That's not what he's saying. And this version of what will be the suffering Messiah, it's going to be a big disappointment to the crowd's expectations. They're going to be so disappointed that only a few days later, they're going to turn on Jesus and they're going to be the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So I want to suggest on your outline, disappointment number two, not getting something. First, we don't want to give up something. And now we don't want to, we're disappointed if we don't get something. So we've received a lot of stress and trouble. And I know I feel this. I would love to be delivered. I'd love to wake up tomorrow have the virus gone, have the world return to normal so things don't, don't feel like this. And in fact, 
things have gotten worse, it seems. More extended orders, and, and we don't want restrictions to last any longer. And we struggle. Let's be honest. We struggle in our heart when God's plan doesn't make our lives more smooth or God's plan doesn't seem fair. See, we think God's liberation is missing and we don't like it. We're like the crowd. You know, bring us something, deliver us from our trouble, from our circumstances. So what are we to do with that? This crowd of 2,000 years ago really is a lesson for us that we can look underneath that disappointment to say, what is God's hand up to? Where is God at work? And, and what appears to our eyes to be something disastrous. So let me ask you, is your spiritual life dependent on God giving you what you want? And if you don't get that something of what you want, do you pull back in your spiritual life? Just like, well, geez, this isn't working. Maybe I don't need to put so much energy and time into it. Or could this be a time we move higher in our relationship with God and to learn how to be united with Jesus, even when we are not getting the stuff that we may want, even when we're having to give up things that we don't want to give up. So number two, crowd, they don't get what they want and they are disappointed. Or there's a third group in John chapter 12 and verse 16. It says, at first, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things that we just read about had been done to him. Now think about this. They followed Jesus around for like probably more than three years. And how did they miss God's bigger plan? And and. And could God be doing something different uh, that, that they aren't even seeing? They, they expected God to usher in this earthly kingdom for Israel, but they missed God's bigger plan for the whole world. So Jesus was crucified a few days later, and these same disciples would scatter and hide in fear, demoralized that their dreams are shattered. And even after Jesus several resurrection appearances, it will take a great deal of teaching to change their understanding to what God's bigger plan really was. So that's on your outline number three. Number three, disappointment, missing God's larger plan. We miss God's larger plan. We have to, to give up things that we don't want to give up. We don't get things that we want. And then we miss God's larger plan. So we think we understand life. We think that that somehow we look at how things are and, and we have just enough knowledge sometimes to think that we know how things should be. But we, just like the disciples, miss God's bigger plan. Could God be doing things right now that we're not seeing, that we may never see? So we hold our expectations so tightly, how the world should operate, how the, how the church should operate. Can we submit those expectations to God instead of digging in our heels and, and alienating the world around us by demanding our rights, demanding our freedoms? Hard questions. The disciples would soon learn this lesson in some ways they could never imagine. The God 
and his liberation are bigger than we can comprehend. So sometimes we miss God's larger plan, and that becomes a source of disappointment. But I'd like to suggest a fourth group in John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, which is a Greek name, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And then in verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat or a seed of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So this group of Greeks, they approach Philip wanting to see Jesus. And really, they boldly had to push through the cultural taboos that said Gentiles are to stay away from Jews. And they wanted to seek Jesus anyway. And so here we are at the triumphal entry. We want to see Jesus, they, they say. So Philip and Andrew, they're not sure what to do with this situation because in their minds, Messiah's mission is about going to the Jews, to Israel. Not the whole world out there, but Israel's rejection of Jesus, which will be culminated in a few days in the crucifixion, has brought a turning point in God's plan. And God's plan is now revealed in the fullness of what he had in mind all along. God's larger plan is for all humanity to be saved through Jesus. His death and his resurrection would be applied to everyone, not just Jews. See, Israel's plan, it was just about them, just about their own deliverance, especially here on earth. And they didn't really think about the rest of the world. The Old Testament, the whole point of God's chosen people wasn't to make this little fortress in the Middle East where they would stay and worship God and keep everyone out. They were supposed to go and, and proclaim who God was and bring the people into his temple in Jerusalem to worship him. They had a very evangelistic outreach mission also to bring people in to God, to them. Not to be special and say they're, they're Gentiles, they're dogs, we don't want anything to do with them. All of Israel, including the disciples, had missed this point. So here's this analogy of a single seed falling to the ground as a picture of God's plan that he's about to unfold. See, one grain will produce an entire field of seeds. But that one grain must die first. It must lose its identity and become something greater. So God's plan was not to deliver Israel from Rome. It was to deliver the human heart from sin. So Jesus' death and his resurrection will launch a movement of God that will change the world forever. So let's go on in verse 25 of chapter 12 and look at God's game plan for us, for you and me. It says in verse 25 of John 12, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, whoever serves, he must follow me. 
See, God's plan, did you pick up the paradox there? If, if you love your life, you're going to lose your life for all eternity. And so what he's saying there is if you set your affections on yourself, you're going to destroy your soul. See, we want to leverage God to fulfill our agenda for what we want. But that's not what Jesus wants us to do. Because if we love our life, say, take care of me, then we're going to lose it. One person says it's easier to shout in a parade than kneel at a cross. I like that. That tells us where we need to be even in this time. Well, there's a second half to this paradox. It says to hate your life is to keep your life for eternity. Now, hate means to reject a self-serving life. It isn't, doesn't mean I wish I was dead and I don't want to be alive. It means to reject a self-serving life. It, it's a shift from focusing on self to focusing on others, from internal to external. And if you think about it, you know the Christian life has many paradoxes in it. To receive, we must give. To be great, we must serve. And to live, we must die. So to follow Jesus, to follow God, is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And how did Jesus walk? He walked serving others. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. He didn't demand people serve him, even though he was the king. And so he's about to give that ultimate picture of a sacrifice, a life that will be sacrificed on the cross for others to show what this principle of living is all about. It's the principle of a dying seed. In a world with a me focus, sacrifice and service are huge. They are radical. They are countercultural. But that's what we're called to. If we're going to cling to our life, we're going to lose it. But if we're going to be willing to die to my own agenda, then I'm going to gain life. And that agenda that I have to give up means taking care of me instead of sacrificing and serving for others. So our last point, it's not a point of disappointment, it's a point of fulfillment. Like the Greeks pushing forward and against the cultural taboos, we seek God no matter what. So we have to let go of some things. We have to be willing not to get some things we think we have to have. We have to let and not miss God's plan because our mind is so focused and clinging to some other way that things should be. So seeking God no matter what. One last story. There was a woman named Mary Bethune. She was born in a cabin in a tiny farm in Maysville, South Carolina in 1875. So this is, of course, 10 years after the Civil War during the Reconstruction time in the Deep South. Well, her parents had both been slaves. She was black. And so their lives were little different 10 years later than they had been during their years of slavery before that. They were too poor to afford an education for their children. And they had little hope of anything being different and rising above the poverty that was so common to rural blacks who lived in the shadow of white plantations. Well, one day the mission board of the Presbyterian Church opened up a school for black children. And Mary's father gave what little money that he had. And Mary would walk each way five miles to go to school. 
She was exceptional in her studies and eventually she would go on to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago to prepare for a career in missions. That was what her calling was. She wanted to go to Africa. At Moody, she found an environment where she could thrive. And so when she graduated from Moody, wanting to go on the mission field, the board of missions, whichever board that was, had no openings for black missionaries in Africa. Go figure. Her dream was shattered. She was filled with disappointment and she struggled to understand why does God's plan work this way? Maybe we ask questions like that. Well, the board suggested, well, why don't you go and, and teach children, little black children in Georgia? And that was where they wanted to send her. So that's what she did. In the years that followed, God's bigger plan emerged. Mary Bethune founded a black school that would later become Bethune-Cookman College. She went on to become one of America's leading black women of the 20th century. She was a leader in education and a, a women's organizations and an advisor to President Franklin Roosevelt. God had other plans for Mary that were much greater than she imagined. So here we are. We have the cataclysmic changes in recent weeks that have perhaps left you disappointed in God's plan. Is that true of you? Are you disappointed in God's plan? If your life is focused on keeping your position in this world, like the priests and the Pharisees, you will be disappointed when things don't work out like you want. And if you're looking for deliverance from uncomfortable circumstances like the crowd at the triumphal entry, then you will always be looking to God to make things easier and you will be disappointed. Or if you stubbornly hold to your expectations for how life should work, then you will miss God's bigger plan. See, disappointment pries our heart open. Another person has said, pain plants the flag of surrender in the fortress of a rebel heart. Pain plants the flag of surrender in the fortress of a rebel heart. See, the religious leaders and the crowd and even the disciples missed God's new plan for life, the way of the dying seed. But that's how we follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's a life of service and sacrifice. So let me close with this question. Are you willing to let go of your disappointments right now and become a dying seed that will multiply God's kingdom as you go out and serve and sacrifice for others and say, God, show me your plan, how I can be a dying seed to my agenda and my rights to follow you. Let's pray. Lord God, these are hard examples in the triumphal entry. Things that look so good. We want to hold our positions and that makes sense, Lord. We need jobs, but sometimes we tie our identity into these roles that we have in these various arenas. So God, help us to release those to see what new role you might have. And Lord, we want you to take away the pain and the suffering and the fear and even, Lord, the anxiety over how we'll make it financially if they don't have a job. Help us even to put that in your hands, not to demand that you have to fulfill our expectations and give us these blessings and these provisions or we'll 
not follow you. So Lord, help us through that. Help us put that in your hands too. And Lord, help us not to demand that life has to work a certain way in our forms and structures, that we can surrender those expectations to look for your bigger plan that's so often hidden. Even, Lord, in our lifetime, it might be hidden. And help us, Lord, to become like the Greeks that push through the cultural taboos, to find you even when others might mock or others might think that we are silly or crazy. Let us find you and seek you anyway, Lord. Let us be people that are dying seeds because we know in dying to ourselves, we'll, we can plant and reproduce seeds that will multiply your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.